The more I got to know, the more terrified I became. I will be absolutely honest. And I think that you have to recognize, you have to realize, you also are aware as a journalist, and especially as an American journalist, that you are seen as as a potential spy working for your government. It feels like mad autocratic dictators are all the rage right now, with rage being the operative word. With the madness of Russia right now, the world's eyes are fixed on Ukraine and the Kremlin. But Vladimir Putin is far from alone in any list of today's ideological maniacs. Perhaps most mysterious, unknown and scary is Kim Jong-un, the third in a family dynasty that started by tearing Korea in twine and continues by keeping the world out and its people in. If your family were unfortunate enough to have been in the northern part of Korea when the country split in 1945, you'd now be living in a place stuck in time, isolated from the rest of the world. There are some great satellite photos of Korea at night when you see the South illuminated as a symbol of its technological and economic growth. North Korea is consumed by darkness. Very few Westerners have been let inside and far fewer have delved beyond the capital city of Pyongyang. Jean H. Lee is an American journalist of South Korean descent who has experienced exactly that. She'll tell me about how she crossed into the freezing, little-known countryside beyond the surveillance-obsessed main city. She even became the first American to set up a news agency over there for Associated Press. You may remember how American student Otto Warmbier was imprisoned in 2016 on charges of subversion after he stole or took down a poster from a hotel as a prank. He was released a year later in a vegetative state and died soon after. Since then, relations between the US and North Korea intensified and almost no one is allowed in. We'll talk about that today, but it's interesting that now Jean's insight into the enigmatic dictatorship is extremely rare. She also has a critically acclaimed podcast on the BBC called The Lazarus Heist about the ways that North Korea has been attacking Hollywood and robbing banks through online hackers. It's really extraordinary, so do find that wherever you get your podcasts, The Lazarus Heist, and follow Jean on at NewsGene on Twitter. It's still my birthday week, and I'm the kind of guy who gets a whole week for his birthday. If you love the show and want to do something for me, um, and you don't have to do that, but don't worry about Patreon and all that stuff for now. What would really help hugely is if you tell two or three friends about this podcast, push them to listen, chat to them about the episodes after. Hey, start a club about it, you know. Um, I'm testing two episodes a week at the moment, uh, as you know, and the only way to sustain this is to double the listenership. So if each of you becomes a missionary for the podcast and gets just two or three people listening, it will be huge for me and a very lovely birthday present indeed. Uh, My girlfriend, Hooli, is editing each episode now. Thank you to her. She loved this one and said that every sentence that Jean says is mind-blowing. One thing after another was just ridiculous and fascinating and just unlike anything I'd heard before. She really does have some unique stories and it makes for a great episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Hope you enjoy. You have family originally from South Korea. 
so you know because I know you report on North Korea but I want to talk about like because we're going to talk about lots of serious stuff so I wanted to ask about Hyung Min's son because he's my hero and is he like is he like he's a football player for anyone listening who doesn't know is he like David Beckham there is he bigger or smaller than David Beckham oh he's huge he's huge I would say he's he is David I mean it's funny because uh yeah he's I would say he's David Beckham level famous I mean South Koreans love their soccer as we call it in America as well and so they so you will see in their news everything he does every move every goal every everything he does is covered in the South Korean media as well has it brought Tottenham because Tottenham's my club that I support has it like made them a big deal in South Korea yeah I mean they love I mean it's fun I was just gonna say they love soccer in North Korea as well as you probably know so an- another interesting question is how big is he in North Korea <laughs> I covered the World Cup in 2010 when the North Koreans competed for the first time since they competed in the UK 40 uh, some years previous. Uh, but um, yeah, they the North Koreans had a football star who was a uh, Japanese-born Zainichi. We talk about him a little bit in my podcast, and uh, so he was a Japanese-born ethnic Korean whose family was loyal to Pyongyang, and he competed for North Korea internationally. But once the once the World Cup was over, he ended up playing in Europe. I didn't even know about that guy. I was following you on because uh, I follow you on Twitter, and I was following uh, some stuff about Sven Goran Eriksson during that World Cup because that World Cup was crazy. It was like North Korea actually were playing in it, and I think they played as my memory, you know, serves. They played pretty well, didn't they? Well, I think it was an achievement just to get to the finals of the World Cup. You know, first time in in, in decades, and it's a tiny team with not many resources. But so Sven Goran Eriksson, I still remember this because I was covering North and South Korea at the time. I still remember when he made that trip to Pyongyang. I mean, big news. He pops up in Pyongyang. We're all wondering, are they going to ask him to become the coach of the North Korean national team? And he says that they did ask him. He declined. Uh, but then he revealed in this podcast uh, for BBC that they also asked if he could help rig the the draw, and they did have a really tough draw. So he was there for their for their matches at the World Cup, and their first match was against Brazil. Can you imagine? <laughs> and I have to say, I think they paid. They played. They played pretty. They did pretty well. So it was, if I recall correctly, and it's been a while. Uh, it was it, it ended up being 2 to 1 i believe we might need to check that they played their hearts out i mean they really did so i think that just the fact that they were able to keep the the score that low was amazing for the north koreans uh, they didn't do so well for the rest of the the other two games in their draw but yeah they just felt like ugh. Could we just get a little better draw so that we could? Is this a huge moment for them on the international stage, right? In terms of um, not only national pride but propaganda for North Korea. So, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a really fun. I was so it was such an interesting experience for me. I'm not. I don't know that much about football or soccer. Still don't know the offsides rule. But I was oh, there no. to really cover. The, <laughs> don't even try to explain it to me. Oh. Um, but. You know, just there to cover the North Koreans and to see the North Koreans compete outside their country. So I was with the team every day. A little bit of a, a little bit of a prep for my time working in North Korea because that was 
That was just before I started working there on a regular basis. Did you feel that you wanted North Korea to win at that point? Having family of a South Korean, is there like that rivalry? It's it's such a strange thing for me to think about North and South Korea. I suppose we have it's complicated in the UK. Do English people want Wales to win and that kind of thing? So, yeah, I mean, I think that... So I'm a second-generation Korean-American. I was born and raised in the United States. My parents now live in South Korea. They're dual citizens, so they have they have both U.S. and South Korean passports. I only have a U.S. passport. Uh, but I do think that Korean-Americans, if South Korea does well, we definitely... And we don't have a U.S. team or any any skin in the game. We definitely support the South Koreans. Now, the question about North Korea, I, mean, I do think that there's, when you see North Korea competing at this level, there is a part of, the, of you that does want the North Koreans to do well as, in addition to rooting for the South Koreans. So I think that you had both the South Koreans and the North Koreans at that World Cup. I mean, I remember World Cups past. I was with some friends in... Prague and we were watching this was in this was four years previous so in 2006 and we were watching we were all wearing so the South Koreans were be the reds you know they also have this uh they used to have these red t-shirts be the reds uh we would wear our be the reds t-shirts and root for South Korea um I think they were playing Germany and so yeah there's a little bit of that there was a little bit of that that there's a little bit of that um, national pride, even if you're a second generation uh, Korean American. In terms of North Korea, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's hard because we tend North Korea is is an enemy of my country in a sense. Like they're still technically at war, uh, and but but having spent so much time in North Korea, and like most ethnic Koreans. I ha- most likely have family there. I don't know where my family is. Many of the the Korean American families I grew up with do still have family there. Some of them are in touch with have been in touch with them. And so yes, it's a country, it's a Korea is a peninsula, a country that's been divided for a very long time where the politics are so tense, the threat is so real, and yet there is a shared history and a shared ethnicity and can help. I could not help when I was there, of course, in thinking who would I be if I were there, if I had ended up on this side of the DMC. And so you have a, a different sense of compassion and connection, I think, than, than if you didn't have that shared history and that shared ethnicity. And North Korea probably is, I think it might be the most fascinating uh, place in, in the world. And how did you then set up um, was it was it, were you the first American to set up a news agency in uh, North Korea? Yeah, I mean that's a big question. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so you know North Korea, I agree, it is such a fascinating country because it's been so closed off. They're so isolated. It's definitely one of the I would say it's the hardest country to get into right now. And we've been shut out as uh, foreigners. We've been shut out for years because they've closed the border and. They haven't allowed people in at all. And so there is a kind of mystique about the country because we simply don't know much about it. And then also because it's a country that in some ways has been left behind uh, as the rest of the world has just 
push forward. And so going to North Korea can feel like you're stepping back into a time, you're stepping into a time machine and going back in time. And also it's a Korea, you know, I think Korea, South Korea is becoming very much more familiar to the rest of the world, perhaps even in the UK uh, in the last couple of years. And so there's a kind of familiarity with South Korea now, I think, that's very recent. Uh, but then when you go to North Korea or you see anything about North Korea, it's this Korea that is just similar but different. Uh, I think, you know, as a journalist, you always want to, as a foreign correspondent, you always want to get on the ground, right? What other country do we cover where we can't get on the ground? And so for me, as a journalist who was assigned to cover the Korean Peninsula, that was my goal. Uh, was to get on the ground in North Korea at some point. Every single foreign correspondent who covers Korea has that goal. Very few are able to make it. And that's both, it's a, it's a complicated issue. And I feel very lucky to have managed to get on the ground. Uh, and not only to have gone on one trip, which is always amazing for any foreign correspondent, but to have made so many trips and spent so much time there on the ground because it definitely has given me a kind of understanding about the place and exposure to the place that I think no other American journalist has had. In your um, a quite amazing and acclaimed podcast, uh, Lazarus Heist, which we'll get on to, you, you do mention at one point uh, what sounded like a veiled threat about, you know, your, your Korean is not quite good enough so you couldn't be a spy, someone said to you. Were you scared while reporting in North Korea, like walking around? And, and and did you have to sort of watch what you reported in case somebody, you know, killed you or something? So, yeah, it's a terrifying place to be. And I think anyone who says it's not as, well, I would say as an American journalist or as an American, because we are technically still at war, uh, isn't fully aware of the risks they face. And I think it's such an interesting thing when you go, if you do go to North Korea, if you're able to go to North Korea for the, if you go for the first time, you tend to be, whether it's as a tourist or as a journalist, you're on a very, very highly orchestrated trip. They're managing everything you do, everything you see. And in some ways, what they want you to see is the very best of North Korea. And I completely understand that. They, for them, it's a moment for propaganda. Uh, but it also means that you don't get to see the full picture. I think the most amazing thing for most people when they go for the first time is that they get to meet these people who are actually humans and not robots. And they're actually funny and they, they can be really affectionate and considerate at times. And that can throw people off. Uh, but that I always try to remind people who visit that that's, that's the job of the guides who, who are there to shepherd us around is to make us fall in love with North Korea. So that's what they're trained to do. Uh, but for me, uh, you know, going there so often, yeah, the more I got to know, the more terrified I became. I will be absolutely honest. And I think that you have to you have to realize you also are aware as a journalist and especially as an American journalist that you are seen as potentially as, as a potential spy working for your government. And part of that is because that's what their journalists do. They have a very different understanding of journalists than we do in the West. And, you know, their journalists are, they're very proud to call themselves their government mouthpiece. For them, journalism is, uh, is propaganda. And so what we do is completely foreign to them. 
And it makes it very hard for us to do our jobs. And I, I would say that most of the time I spent, I will say that I spent 99, I'd say at least 90% of my time negotiating uh, because we're just not, it's just very hard to operate freely and just have to push and barter and beg and to do, to go anywhere, to see anything, to, to meet with anyone. Uh, I think the biggest challenge and accomplishment for me was being able to break out of the, the mold or break out of those rules that they impose on us, what they want us to see, where they want us to go, and to be able to go to the places that I wanted to visit and speak to the people I wanted to without them dictating it. Now, in terms of, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, anyone, anyone who's very well aware of the circumstances of North Korea knows that we're all monitored to a certain degree, that the, the hotel rooms are bugged. Uh, and so, you know, there's, a, there's almost constant surveillance. And I think that that is part of daily life in North Korea. It's built into life for all North Koreans. And the thing is, they're used to it, but we are not. I mean, I, we're not, we're not. We grow, and it does make you appreciate, you know, we grow up in a, in a, in, if we grow up, growing up in the West, we have so much liberty and I'm so much more uh, grateful for that after having spent time in North Korea where you can't take that for granted and where you have to be aware of it at all times. Watch what you say watch where you go, watch who you speak to. And so I think that, yeah, it, was, it is terrifying. It can be terrifying at times. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. 
on What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Could you have gone out there with like, can people go out there as a couple? I'm just thinking about, it's almost like privacy of one person, like on your own. I I feel like I could take that to an extent. But if it was like me and my partner out there and they're spying on that, that's almost harder. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, I think in some ways, or you'd have to be on your best behavior. Um, But I think also in some ways having, as, as a journalist, I used to think that, it would have been nice to have a foil, somebody who is completely clueless in some ways and could be excused for their cluelessness in some ways and the, and the kinds of questions that they, the, the daft questions that they might ask, you know, um, because as a journalist, you'll be held accountable for it, yet perhaps you have a little bit more leeway if you were going there as a tourist. Um, that said, I just don't think any of us would want to put the people closest to us in that kind of danger. Uh, but people have, people have. I have friends who've gotten married in North Korea. What? Who truly, yeah, truly um, love the country. Think of it, I mean, talk about the most unusual place to get married. Uh, and the North Koreans were always like, bring bring your bring your family, bring your friends. And I did have friends visit me while I was there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I want to, I always encourage, during the time when we could visit, so I should be clear that right now, Americans, well, nobody can visit right now, right? Because they've sealed the borders. Uh, but s- for for some time now, since 2017, Americans have not been able to go there without permission from the State Department. Was that around the time that that guy, what did he take? He took something from the wall or something in a hotel. Yeah, absolutely. So Otto Warmbier, a college student at the University of Virginia, uh, went there on a tour you know, just as a tourist, probably was like North Korea on my bucket list, probably, you know, just the most adventurous place you could visit as a college student. So there is a hotel and I've stayed there. I absolutely hate it. I call it the Tower of Pyongyang uh, because it's the place, they put it on an island and it, it's the place that they like to put tourists. And I only stayed there if I had to, uh, if there was a big event and all the, all the rest of the foreign correspondents were staying there. It's it's known for having the fifth this fifth floor that is hard to get to, and if you do a YouTube search of the fifth floor of the Yangakdo Hotel, you'll see all kinds of intrigue. Now I've been on the fifth floor accidentally. It's the staff quarters, and it is entirely different from the rest of the hotel. So the hotel looks like a normal international hotel. They go to the fifth floor, and it's like you've stepped into a different world. And it's the walls are just lined with posters and propaganda. So it's kind of like going into the staff quarters of any office where you go back where you have your people have their lunch and you've got all those like for us in, in the US, it's like how to resuscitate someone if they're if they're how to do the Heimlich maneuver if they're choking or it could be like staff policy. So that's what it is. It's just 
propaganda in North Korea. And what he did was he went to the fifth floor and took down a poster. And what he didn't know is, A, there's CCTV cameras all along the fifth floor. And also that the poster he took down was one, a slogan with the name in Korean, I believe, of the late leader, Kim Jong-il. And so that, yeah, that something like that would be considered desecration and an anti-state crime. They take any desecration of anything depicting the leader very seriously. And so I think what the rest of us would see is a little bit of a college prank, for example, right? I mean, it's just not so serious to warrant the punishment that he received. He ended up getting, I believe, 15 years hard labor uh, for that and um, a host of other alleged crimes that he he was coerced into confessing to. And yeah, I mean, he, yeah, was not a, ended up falling into a coma and was finally taken out of the country in 2017 and died not too long after that. What do you think actually happened with regards to the coma? Was he just tortured to an extent that he fell into a coma? I really don't know. It, uh, it's hard to say, and I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate. It is unusual to torture. So it, I think Americans are seen as diplomatic pawns. And I felt that very keenly when I was there at times that that they see the detainment of Americans as a useful way to kind of summon high-level American leaders to North Korea. And there's a pattern of it. And so in, in that sense, they don't necessarily – it's not usual for them to, to torture them to that extent. But who knows? Regardless – his care was entrusted to the North Koreans. They were responsible for him. And something happened, whether it was, however it happened, something happened while he was in, in their care. And, um, and that, I think, certainly um, prompted the U.S. government to make it very difficult for Americans to go there without their approval uh, because of the concerns they had about the treatment of Americans and Americans being taken hostage to serve as bargaining chips. So where you said you weren't staying at that, you didn't like to go to that hotel unless it was to meet other journalists and things. So where were you staying? Where else can one stay? So I used to call the Gorio Hotel home, which is uh, one of the hotels downtown. And I liked it because it was right downtown. It's also where the North Korean elites stay. Uh, as anyone will tell you, they have a very good pub. And, but it was, it was nice. It was downtown. So it was, you know, I was able, I had permission to walk around. So I was able to go shopping and, and, and get around a bit on my own. And so it was a little bit, it felt less isolated than being on that island. But it really was also the center of, of a lot of North Korean social activity. And so it was a good place to be if you wanted to meet with other uh, foreigners. And there were, at the time when I was there, there were some foreigners, you had diplomats and aid workers, but also a good place to meet with North Koreans as well. So that was what I called home. And, you know, every time that I, when I was in North Korea, I made sure to get out of the capital, get out of Pyongyang. And, and it's rough once you leave Pyongyang. So coming back to the Korea always felt like, it's a little bit of a, it was my home away from home. 
you get those there's those maps aren't there at night of like south korea all like lit up like all lights everywhere and they're just total darkness in north korea so so what are people getting up to because i just have no idea i'm completely ignorant of this and i've even watched like documentaries about north korea and i still don't have any are there people like sitting at home just having dinner and nice conversations or is everybody in some sort of like uh, work camp what what is going on with like average people so i think that what happens in daily life this is the thing this is why it's so fascinating it's also so mysterious because they want us to see the prettiest picture possible. And so we just get the propaganda. So if you were to look at state media, uh, their news agency or their magazines, everything looks perfect. Life is perfect. But the reality is that life is very, very difficult. Uh, so there's life in the capital, which is where about 2 million of, we call them elites because just by, just to be in the capital is a luxury, even though it's by no means a luxurious existence. But I have to say what I want to tell you about is what it's like once you leave the capital, because that's something that most people won't get to see. So as you mentioned, I mean, they have an extreme shortage of power. And for me, I mean, once I, once you leave the capital, the road, there, there are very few paved roads and there's almost no electricity. So these it would just be jet black across the entire country. So once the one, even for me, when I was in the countryside, once the sun sets, that's it. I and mean, we go to bed early. I thought you know it was great because you get you get a full night's sleep. But it's there were definitely times when I would be driving through. We would be driving. Just say I because I was not allowed to drive. We would be driving through the countryside, and the only lights were the lights from our the headlights from our SUV. So just quickly, who who was driving then? Someone's assigned to you or something? Yeah, I um, paid a driver, and we had. I did bring a car, um, and so, but I wasn't. So wasn't. So even though I I had a lot of rights as an American journalist, I did not have the right to drive my own vehicle. He's keeping tracks on you to an extent, is he? So, you know, I think he really was just a driver. But what's interesting is. Yeah, I mean, he, he was not. I think there were other people who were who were tasked with keeping track of me, um, but uh, he he was a great guy. He was, you know, I got to know all of my staff, uh, and um, just a so- he was a softy. So, uh, but you know, he, I I'm. It was fun going to the countryside with him as well. One thing you learn about the North Koreans is that things like. Um, a cell phone network are very are relatively new for them, and so even um, when we would get lost in the countryside, it wouldn't occur to them. I think I had to teach them. Well, you can use your cell phone to try to call to get information, or we could use the cell phone to try to figure out where to go. And so it was really interesting to be there with my staff and and to teach them how to use technology to help them get information because this is a society where they're used to waiting to receive information or maybe it's just a dude thing and he's like i don't need directions <laughs> i'll just i'll figure it out on my own. but i do remember that moment where it was like it was like a eureka moment where i was like well let's just call i'll call there's a phone i have a phone number let's call them and find out you know so this this would happen because we would get lost as well because they didn't have uh Car. We didn't have a car with a GPS system, uh, but that kind of thing is very strictly regulated. But we had cell phones on the North Korean network, and the cell phone network was expanding. And there were certainly long, huge swaths of the country where there was no cell phone coverage. And this is another thing I think um, 
it's always really interesting is that they have a, separ- a separated network in the sense that you and I as foreigners are on one network and the North Koreans are on a, a different network. And I'm not a tech person, so I can't really explain how they do that. But I could, I can call places that have, uh, I can call certain people in certain places and they can call only other North Koreans. We couldn't call one another. I could not call the North, my North Korean stuff. So weird. You know what? So also not to be, I don't mean to be facetious because obviously there's an immense amount of suffering out there for millions of people, but you're sort of at this point, you're, you're like out in the middle of nowhere. You're on the edge of the world. Like, and is there, is there some sort of beauty in that? Can you see the stars quite well in the darkness and that kind of thing? So I will say that there is a a kind of simplicity. Like I said, it's like going back in time and that's very unusual. So when I first started going, there was, it was very nice. We weren't allowed to bring our cell phones in. We had to leave them, lock them up at the airport. I just wouldn't bring one in. And it was nice not to be tethered to your cell phone. And in some ways, it was so nice to be cut off from civilization that way because you could really focus it's like the pre-cell phone days, which none of us remember, but you could really focus on what you were seeing around you, the way things smelled, the way things looked in a way that, you know, unfortunately, I was the first one to get 3G access on my cell phone. So, you know, I, I was like, hook this up so I can use it. And then I regretted it immediately because then we were connected in a way that was convenient for communication, but took away from the beauty of that time in the past where we could really focus on things. As you say, you know, this is all, this is a first world issue for me to be like, it was so nice to be untethered from communications. But in terms of the, yeah, I mean, there is a kind of beauty as well uh, to the being able to see the sky, of course, with that kind of darkness. But trust me, you can't really appreciate the beauty when you're freezing because you have no heat and electricity. And so there's a, you know, for me, that's something that I often, people ask me what North Korea is like. And one of my photographers, and it was hard for me to talk about North Korea for many years. It still is hard at some, at times. And he said that when people would ask what it was like, my first answer was it's cold because I think that that's something that you can't feel in pictures. So I talk about this quite a bit because if you can imagine being in Siberia, which it basically is, uh, so it is one of, it is parts of North Korea, are the coldest place I've been. And I grew up in the coldest place in America. So, I mean, unbelievably cold because they have no heat and I can't, it just gives me the shivers thinking about it. I can't tell you how it is a form of cruelty to be that cold. And for me, it was sporadic because I did have the luxury of going back to this hotel where elites and foreigners were given that luxury. It was all hoarded for people like us, but the rest of the North Koreans didn't have that luxury. And I mean, I still, I still have residual frostbite, you know, from my time in North Korea. So even now when it's not particularly cold, my fingers burn, they hurt. And so I think that, you know, (laughs) one of my interns, who is a defector from North Korea, when I explained this, she's, she was nodding and she's like, yeah, I totally know what you mean. I mean, that's t- completely true. We all suffer from that. And so I think that, you know, I don't want to, I do think that there's so many things about North Korea that are beautiful, 
but there is a harshness of life that we are not aware of, that we can't see or feel because we're not there. And so I try to share that because I was there and I, I do very keenly remember how tough it was to get through a day, sleep through a night when you are literally wearing every piece of clothing that you have and it's still not enough. Are people in ca- cabins, buildings, huts? What? How are people living out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the hardest place to be is in some of these smaller cities uh, because they're living in kind of rundown, decre- decrepit apartment buildings that aren't very well insulated, uh, where you've got, you know, often I'd see broken window panes, uh, windows, they just didn't have the resource to do resources to fix them or replace them. And I'm sure the wind, I mean, the thing about North Korea as well is it's a mountainous country. All of Korea is pretty mountainous, but North Korea is 85% mountains. And so that means two things. One, that they don't have a lot of land to farm. And also because they don't have electricity, they've cut down all the trees. And so uh, it's just, they've cut down the trees to use for firewood. And it all, all kind of means that there's nothing to stop the wind, uh, and there's also nothing to stop landslides. So you just get this. It just becomes, oh, my gosh. I am just thinking of the times when I was standing outside, and when you don't have the trees that are native to that terrain, you just have this Siberian wind blow straight through you. It is like the most – oh, my God. It is just the, the most – I. It's, you can't even, I can't even explain it. It's just, it cuts right through you. So yeah, so it's, um, it's a brutal, brutal landscape. And I, I talk about this because I do think that in some ways, you know, countries are entitled to remain isolated if they're peaceful. But when they're not peaceful in their isolation, like North Korea, which, uh, you know, has nuclear weapons or is holding their people hostage and their people, People who could have been could have been me on the other side of that DMZ, uh, suffering through this type what I consider a, a daily human rights violation. You can't help but draw attention to it and try, try to shine a light on it to remind people what's at stake. That there are generations of people who that who are going without food, medicine, electricity, the kinds of things that they need to thrive. And I feel it all the more keenly because my family's future is directly intertwined with what happens to the people of this country in North Korea. What is happening at the moment? There have been some sort of nuclear test things going on, right? Well, not a nuclear test, uh, hopefully not right now, but a lot of ballistic missile tests. So uh, they unprecedented number in January, just like test after test after test. We just had another one the other day. And so, of course, the question is, what is going on? Why now? And you know what? I always try to explain that this is a big year for North Korea. Kim Jong-un has a lot on his agenda. Uh, so this, there's a propaganda purpose, which is to, you know, these, these, these weapons do give the North Koreans a sense of pride. They're like, well, hey, we're a small country, but we were able to do this, build these huge weapons. Uh, and so there, it, it is a way to um, bring the people together, give them a sense of pride. When you raise the specter of war as well and highlight the threat of war, it also is a way to, it's a common tactic that leaders use to bring the people together as well, right? To, to unify them around a uh, fighting an, an outside threat. 
but I would say it's also it's part of uh, preparations for negotiations. Kim Jong Un knows that the nu- his nuclear weapons, his ballistic missiles, are threatening, and he wants to use them to compel all these countries around him to pay attention to North Korea. It gives North Korea relevance, but it also gives the leader of North Korea something to work with when he sits down at negotiations. So. It's, but there's so many things you have to worry about. You have to worry about nuclear safety. You know, it's crazy, but I was just looking at a report that there are all these natural uh, earthquakes right around the nuclear site in North Korea, um, which has me wondering. So there's a nuclear safety issue. What happens when they, if they do test another nuclear device underground, what happens to the environment? Um, what happens if something goes awry? Uh, but then also no, proliferation. Who are they selling this to? What rogue uh, actors are they possibly selling this technology to? We know they're desperate. And so where, who could they be working with to make money off their weapons and missiles? So lots of concerns uh, around this ambitious drive to build missiles and weapons. Do you think any of it might hinge on the the Russia-Ukraine situation? So I think it's interesting because we saw a test just the other day. And so there's a lot of speculation on Korea, Korea watchers. Is this is this a way for them to, to, rem, to remind the Biden administration, don't forget, we're still building our weapons. I mean, that is something they do. Uh, but I think it was looking at it for me, it was, I think North Korea, Kim Jong-un has his own timeline, but also uh, maybe he was thinking, well, the world's attention is focused elsewhere. So maybe I can just sneak this in. So it's, we always look at that, you know, what is, what is the signaling? What is the meaning? But I think that he has, so with these tests, with, uh, with these weapons, you need to test them to, to figure out what goes right, what goes wrong. And so he does have a series of tests that he wants to carry out before he can claim that they are functioning. And the tests also prove that they're working and that the, that the technology is working. So I've always been saying we've just got to be, we've got to brace ourselves because he has a timeline. And that timeline does require some testing. It's really scary. Oh, my God. The whole thing's quite scary. I guess you must worry about your parents. In South Korea, they're they're so near. I guess, I mean, we'd all be screwed if nuclear stuff goes wrong, right? Well, North Korea would be screwed too, so let's hope that they don't. Yeah, well, if they (laughs) mess up, though. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to make you worry. What do I know anyway? No, I think you're absolutely right. So we we would call that like a a threat of a miscalculation. So say they were to fire a ballistic missile and it goes... And a couple of them have gone over Japan and say Japan were to feel compelled to shoot it down. And then you could trigger a conflict in the region. So absolutely, I think we should be, we should be worried. Uh, and it's got to a point where it's like a crying wolf situation where we're, there's so many that we're not in a way we're, we're kind of getting used to the constant barrage of missiles, but it just takes one to trigger a conflict. And so, I mean, I don't want to be this. So. I don't want to be a scaremonger because this is exactly what North Korea wants, to be honest. They want us to feel like the peninsula is on the verge of war. But there is a very real concern. So I think that we need to be, you know, for us, those of us who watch North Korea, it's like raising the sense of urgency without causing panic, uh, but also just trying to reiterate that something has to be done about it. And this is something we, you know, this is why I did the podcast, um, because I think that one of the big questions is always, Wait, how are they getting the money? Where are they? Get- They've been sanctioned for decades. Where are they getting the money? And so this is exactly what 
what I wanted to investigate and, and how I try to bring all the pieces together so that we, we you connect the dots and understand that why it is that North Korea is so desperate, how they've made their money over the, the years as we go into some crazy stories about how Kim Jong-un's father uh, made money illicitly to get around the sanctions. I love some of those stories. As, as There's just like what we call the bonkers stories about North Korea. But also, you know, how does this, he's a millennial. How does this millennial leader of North Korea do it? What is his tactic? And why does he need that money so badly? Yeah, well, tell us about, well, I guess, I guess the podcast, what it's what it's about, because it's a, it's fascinating, and I think I believe it's done really well. It's got a lot of good publicity. People seem to love it. So, yeah, do do tell me a bit about it. Yeah, so it's called the Lazarus Heist. So the Lazarus Group is what uh, the cyber community, one of the many nicknames given to the North Korean hackers. Uh, they have many other names. The U.S. government calls them Hidden Cobra. Uh, South Koreans have their own name for this group. And, you know, we believe that they are state-supported hackers. And this podcast series, so it's a, the first season was 10, 10 episodes. Uh, we're working on the second season right now. But the first season, you know, we this was the brainchild of my co-host, Jeff White, and I was brought into it to explain the North Korean side of it. So he, he handles a cyber and I handle the North Korea side of it. And I think that what I wanted to do was to provide, so we focus on there are primarily three cyber attacks that we look at. And we start with the Sony hack of 2014, because I think it's one that people remember. A lot of people have seen the interview. People may, and I think it was the first time that North Korea and cyber really reached a level of global awareness. I mean, I think it took us all by surprise when Sony pictures. So what? So just a quick recap of that. Uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco put out a movie called The Interview. Uh, and it was a story of, it was unfortunately for someone like me, American journalists who go in or commissioned by the CIA uh, to go into North Korea and hang with Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Doesn't end well for Kim Jong-un, spoiler alert. Um but, you know, to have made a movie like that about a sitting leader of a country and a country like North Korea, where they take the leadership so seriously, I just knew that that was going to provide an opportunity for retaliation. And so something that I did worry about. And when we saw Sony Pictures, which made the movie completely taken down in a cyber attack, uh, that was pinned very explicitly on the North Koreans by then President Barack Obama. That's when I realized they had pretty, they must have had pretty good proof to connect the North Koreans to this. And so we start there with the podcast. And, um, and then we move on to the Bangladesh bank heist. Uh, that took place a couple years later in which suspected hackers tried to steal a billion dollars and almost got away with it. And it's a couple of mistakes that or flukes that um, tripped them up. But I think what we wanted to do as well with the Bangladesh Bank heist was to show uh, how they did it and, and to provide the context for why they did it. And so this was a series that took us, of course, to Bangladesh, 
but to a number of other countries as well, because North Korea does rely on its overseas network to try to not only, because once you get the money, you've got to launder it. So we go to the casinos of the Philippines. You've got to, you've got a host of middlemen, you know, from China, uh, from all over the world to help you get that money back to North Korea. And then of course you've got the North Korean hackers. And for me, that was important was to get us back to Pyongyang, uh, to take us to China, to show how these young men who grow up in a closed, isolated society that is cut off from the internet, how they are able to carry off some cyber attacks that require some pretty ingenious social engineering. So learning how we live in order to attack us. Oh, my God. I mean, how did people respond to you when you were in North Korea going around, I mean, outside the cities? Were you like, I don't know, had they ever met anybody who was an American before? Oh, so yeah, that's a good point. I think almost everywhere we went, the refrain was almost, you're the first American who's been allowed here. So there are a lot of places where they never allowed an American or an American never visited. Uh, but, you know, I think it was what was different is that I don't look like an American to them. So, you know, we have a, they have a stereotype of an American, uh, and it's a stere- it's a picture that you see in their posters. It's like this tall, skinny, really gangly American with yellow hair and a huge nose. Um, <laughs> so they have this stereotype, and I don't fit that. So their stere- their propaganda does, and they have so little access to to, to Americans. Uh, so it's either a an American soldier or an American missionary. There was a huge missionary population in North Korea before the war, American missionary population. So I think that one thing that was different for me was because I am a Korean American, I did not look threatening in the same way that a white American might, a white American who fits the stereotype. But have they heard of um, America? Have they heard of Britain? Do they know about like the UK and stuff? So it really depends on who you ask. Again, I would say that that you've got a population in Pyongyang that is fairly sophisticated. And, you know, you have an embassy. There's nobody there right now, but you have an embassy in Pyongyang. Um, And you used to have, we used to have British teachers there. Uh, So I think they're, yeah, they are aware of Britain. The beauty of being British in 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 North Korea is that you don't have the same history that Americans have. So in some ways, you're able to function a bit differently. And so I always appreciated my British friends who were able to, who had a different kind of experience there. Um, and I do hope that North Korea opens up and that the British embassy is able to to get back and and do their work there because they do, do important work, I think, um, in diplomacy that the Americans can't because they don't have an embassy there. Uh, but yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the things for me was to make sure to, as a journalist, uh, to be able to really understand the North Koreans was to get as close as I could to speaking like them, to looking like them, dressing like them. And that was my staff's favorite activity was let's turn Jean into a North Korean. So um, so it was really interesting. And I just, I'll just tell you this. I was in LA last week and I kept having these dreams. You know, LA has a huge Korean community. So I was really excited. I was going to go to Koreatown and get some Korean food. Uh, we don't have 
many Korean American. We don't have a much of a Korean community here in DC, so I was excited to to work to speak Korean again. But I kept having these dreams um, in LA that I was every time I spoke Korean, I was speaking North Korean. So it's a different dialect, and people ask me what it's like, and I always say it's it's kind of like if I were to switch between British English and American English. Don't make me do it. I can't. I can't switch into a British accent, even though I lived there for five years. Okay, I was going to ask that. <laughs> oh, please don't. But my dry cleaner in London, when I told him I was leaving, he's like, why do you still speak like an American? We haven't succeeded in turning you. Why are you still speaking like that? And I said, it I would to- be It would be weird if you did change. I mean, so, you know, I had to hold on to my American accent while I was in Britain. Otherwise, I'd sound like Madonna. Um, but I had to, I think that, you know, we you learn in Britain to change your intonation, right? So I would learn to speak like a Brit, but just not with the accent, right? And so with, with North Korea, um, it is a very different, I would say it's similar. It's a different vocabulary, similar to the difference between American and British. They, we spell certain letters differently. Um, we have a different vocabulary, just like you have a different vocabulary than we do in some ways. Um, you know, we don't say aluminium and we don't. So we pronounce things slightly differently and we don't say lift, you know, we say elevator. So you've got these kind of differences. But I sometimes get the words mixed up. And so and I sometimes when I open my mouth, I sound like a North Korean. And so I phoned someone up in in Koreatown in LA and and I was supposed to meet somebody and she's you know I made an appointment and she said when I first heard you I thought you were North Korean <laughs> and I just thought oh my god I've been having dreams about this I was having dreams all week that I was I wasn't gonna be able to switch so it's really interesting I think that um I am lucky to have been able to uh you know as as you as you know my Korean's not that great as I admitted in the podcast uh, but being able to switch between the dialects meant that I could converse with North Koreans um, and speak to them and, and chit chat with them. And that was hugely helpful, uh, just not having to rely on an interpreter and to hear, understand what they're saying. And because the main thing I would say is that when you're a journalist there, uh, if you if you rely on, on a, an interpreter, they don't translate all the jokes and N- North Koreans are hilarious so you're missing the essence of, of of their sense of humor, who they are, when you don't get the full translation. Yeah, I get that. I, that's funny. I I I'm uh, I like languages myself, and I'm 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 wary of mentioning it because I mention it in every podcast episode. I I speak uh, a few languages and have done documentaries in them as well and it's exactly the same thing that i say is is well, that you can build a rapport with someone even if you're trying to expose them you can build the rapport by joking with them and the humor comes out and then they're sort of on side with you so so language is essential for humor isn't it so are you going to bust out with a joke in Korean? Was that what is that where this is headed? No, no, just just <laughs> okay. I don't speak I don't speak any Korean. I don't speak any Korean, but but uh, other languages that I've um but you know, it was I, I I I earned the trust of an exorcist on uh, a documentary in in uh, Argentina, and being able if I couldn't speak the language and if I had to go through interpreters, it wouldn't have worked. It, it, he would never have. I would have just been on the side, sort of trying to get uh, information from him. But this way, I was able to joke with him about you know Dracula and vampires and stuff, and then become sort of a friend of his, and then expose some of the abusive stuff he was doing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so that's absolutely right. You know, I think you you you've got it that that having that language takes away some of the barriers that we have when we're 
when we rely on interpretation. But wow, that is... <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I'll have to send you that film. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Crazy guy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So going back to Lazarus Heist, um, so yeah, the first bit, as you were saying, that's about the Sony hacking. Um, And isn't it, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? This Seth Rogen film, and it just changed everything. And I remember you were saying before about uh, you can't, um, you know, the guy who took down the poster, and if it mentions, uh, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un, then... It's almost like, yeah, it's almost religious, isn't it? And um, so then to make a film as well, and to, you, oh, you, you said in the podcast that if you put like a newspaper, you can't ever like tear it up, right? Because it might have his face in there somewhere or something like that, right? Yeah. So that was one of the first things on my first trip to North Korea. I was told, um, you know, if you pick up a newspaper or any publication, um, just lay it gently on top of the wastebasket or the rubbish bin or whatever you call it over there. Um, because, you know, we might crink, crinkle it up, you know, you just like n- natural to whatever, crinkle it up and stuff it in. But yeah, the, it, he's plastered all over that publication. And so you are crinkling up his image. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that we don't think twice about because we don't grow up in totalitarian regimes with a cult of personality. I mean, some may disagree, but, uh, but, um, you know, that I, that's really stuck in my mind because it's like the first, everything they tell you when you go to North Korea, you're like, whoa, I am definitely um, not in Kansas anymore, uh, where it's a different world and they play by different rules and they're so cut off that they can't, they have no space to allow you to be who you are. And their laws are extraterritorial. So, you know, if you were, they could also prosecute you for things that you do outside the country that they consider a violation of their rules. Yeah. And so I think that that we all do, we all, all of us who go to North Korea break their law, uh, break their laws multiple times a day because we can't help ourselves. And you always think, is this the day when they're going to nail me on it? Uh, and so that's when we talk, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we talk about it being a terrifying place. The more I got to know how their society works, the more difficult it became, the more aware I became of every transgression. And you just never know, am I going to be taken in today? I've been breaking laws all along. Am I? Is today the day where they decide they need to take me in? So, yeah, it's terrifying. I think that this is something that North Koreans live with as well. And if you talk to defectors, often many of them do leave because they're just hungry. They want a better, a different life. But many of them leave because they've somehow crossed that line or they're, they're aware that they've crossed that line and that, that they may face the risk of, of being taken to a prison camp. And the prison camp, so, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of people, we believe, languishing in, in these horrendous prison camps. And it's not hard to, um, break the law in North Korea. So it's it's a very real threat that is a part of daily life there. I'm sorry, I'm painting such a grim picture, but it is it's a it's a really it's a really difficult place. And it's hard for me 
you know, going back and forth was really hard because you see it's like these two, this Korean Peninsula, these two Koreas went such opposite directions. And they, the North Koreans have such a strong sense of pride and they should, they should, they try to find joy in, in their lives. You know, people are always like, why do you have so many pictures of them laughing and smiling? And I'm like, well, as tough as their lives are, they're going to try to make the most of it, right? They're going to try to find beauty and joy in their lives, in their relationships. But when you see South Korea, which has its own, like any modern democracy, has its own issues. It's got its own problems. Uh, it's a, South Korea is a difficult place as well. But it's thriving economically. It's like the 10th or 11th largest economy in the world. Um, and really part of the first world. And then, and its economy is at least 40 times bigger than North Korea's. So you go to a country that's just thriving and then you, for me, I was crossing the border, you know, on one day I'd be in North Korea and the next, later that day, the same day I'd be in South Korea and you just think, oh my God, how could two countries have gone such different directions? And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, you know, so. No, I understand. I can imagine. I mean, I was just going to say to make, to with all those little rules and laws and things for them to then Seth Rogen to make that movie where you see Kim Jong-un being killed and stuff. So then they retaliated with this uh, hack and then exposed loads of stuff about like Tom Cruise being difficult to work with. Um, race someone that the so people at Sony were making racial jokes to mock Obama. I don't remember that, that stuff happening. So I do remember it. There were a lot of revelations and I do remember that it was a lot of, it's basically stuff that you wanted. It's like you sent a private message and suddenly you're like gossip, you know, people in Sony were gossiping about these stars and that's not stuff that you want to have out into the world. Um, some of it was really humiliating, I think. I, I mean, I think that they shouldn't have been saying that stuff in the first place. So it says something about how private, private communications are because uh, the North Koreans can get their hands on them and they will use it against you but this is part of the terror that i you this is what you're saying do you bring somebody like a partner to north korea well i don't know i mean do you want everything out there because it's <laughs> so i think that um i think yeah i mean I, I i do remember this i think it was a lot of uh it was it was a way to really uh it was a way for them for the north koreans to kind of sow discord i mean this is a a, a very minor way because it was hollywood but um they can do this in many different ways, in many different forms against other countries. South Korea is usually the target of this. Uh, it was the first time I had seen the United States become the target of this type of alleged attack from the North Koreans. And so just to, to end on, on I, I want to know if you have any hope for North Korea. Is there a way out of the sort of totalitarianness of the country? Uh, you know... It's really difficult because as somebody whose family lives in South Korea, uh, I do feel that South Koreans, and we all need to be aware that the, these two countries are, their futures are intertwined. And so for South Korea's sake, they have to find a way to live peacefully with North Korea. You'll have some people, especially in the United States, talk about uh, overturning the regime or you know, the end of North Korea as we know it. But I, I think it's very dangerous to talk about that. I think that what we need to think about is how can the world, 
How can South Korea in particular live with North Korea? What does that look like? It may mean some sort of an economic arrangement, but it also has to include some sort of denuclearization discussions. How to negotiate a reduction of the threat of the weapons that they hold over the region? Because if they continue to build those weapons, they're going to have a whole region under threat in forever. And that's not something I want to see the Korean people, North or South, have to live with. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that I do hope that um, it's really tricky. I do hope that there's some way that they can find a way to to live more peacefully without the constant threat. Um, and for the sake of the North Koreans, to live in, live in a way where the resources, the scarce resources that they have, aren't poured into weapons. I mean, this is a country that still needs to build roads, needs basic infrastructure, needs to figure out how to rehabilitate the, the, the land that they need to grow food. They need to have a better relationship with other countries so they're not so isolated and so that they can get out of this cycle of sanctions. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would love for North Korea to be nor- more normalized, to be part of the international community. But it's, it's not looking good. There's a long, long way to go. But I don't think that we can really just let North Korea remain isolated and sequestered off building their weapons indefinitely. It's not good for the for global security, but it's also not good for the North Korean people. That might be just how Kim Jong-un wants it, though. I actually... Okay, so I'll go out on a limb. I mean, he, I actually think that he wants a different future, but he's under the constraint of trying to figure out how he wants how he can build that different future while still holding on to power. And so his first priority is always going to be, okay, how do I make sure I stay in power? And the techniques he uses for that are very impressive. But if he can if he is going to he is trying to come up with a strategy that will mean a different because he is a young guy. He doesn't want to to I do think he wants a very different um different relationship with the United States. Thought he could do it with President Trump. I mean, you know, but I actually think that if he plays his cards right, what he wants is is something different from North Korea. It's just, does he have the security? Does he have the wits? Does he have the kind of ingenuity to, to, to really chart that path um, and take North Korea away from this kind of uh, the role that they've carved out for themselves? I don't know. But... That's what we could hope for, is that he does make the decision to move away from nuclear weapons and really think about how to build a future that is sustainable for his people. Wow, that is one of my favorite episodes ever. This podcast is supposed to be on the edge And there's nowhere in the world quite as on or off the edge as the dark Siberian-like countryside at night in North Korea. What an experience Jean H. Lee has had. Get her podcast, The Lazarus Heist, wherever you get your podcasts and follow her on at News Jean. I'm so happy she came on. This was a really, really great one. Remember, it's my birthday week, so I've set you all a task like a greedy sweet 16er 
giving out a list for their presence. It won't feel like a lot just getting one or two people, but if every single one of you does it, that's going to be tens of thousands of more listeners. So uh, I've been doing a lot of research and taking online courses to improve the podcast in not just the technology and equipment and stuff, but also marketing and things like that. Um, which is partly why it's now at two episodes a week, which is a lot of work, uh, but it's also very rewarding work, so I'm not going to complain. But if you like it, if you enjoy it, um, I would be extremely grateful to you if you are able to just spread it around. Word of mouth is apparently, according to all the things online, word of mouth is the best marketing tool. Uh, People trust their friends' opinions, which is quite nice. So please, please just make it your duty this week to tell two or three people about the podcast. I want to see if this call to action actually has an effect and if next week the stats double. Uh, I'm going to say I bet they don't because I'm quite a pessimistic guy, but maybe there'll be some difference. Hey, and I'll keep pushing you all about that. That'll be fun to listen to, won't it? Me just banging on about it. But uh, yeah, spread it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, but tell your friends personally. That's that's what might actually do the trick. Thank you so much for all your support. Thanks to my new patrons, David and Cameron. I feel like the gods are trying to tell me something there. They want me to become a conservative or something. That's a reference to the former Prime Minister, David Cameron. But they are, in fact, two different people, David and Cameron. I haven't heard back from you uh, about whether you want your full names mentioned. So I'll just go with David Cameron. Um, The actual former Prime Minister is not a patron of the podcast, as far as I know. See you in a few days for my discussion on woke culture, trans stuff, vaccine deniers, Ukraine, Russia, extremists, and all of that with comedian, friend of comedian Ricky Gervais. I was going to say Ricky Gervais' friend, but then you would have all got so excited at Ricky Gervais. But you should be excited as well because it's Twitter royalty, Stephen Knight, who's been on here before. I'm really excited to have him back on. He's just fantastic to talk to. He's really, really... Um, good value every time he comes on. So hope you enjoy.